Thank you for joining us and listening to this message from the Ministry of Grace Providence Church in Cerritos, California. For more information, visit our website at www.graceprovidencechurch.org. All right, we're coming now to this last uh, paragraph in Mark chapter 2, beginning at verse 23. This is another story of controversy for the Lord Jesus. He's going to be questioned and challenged yet again by the Pharisees. It's interesting, they're now going to, before the last one, it was what his disciples weren't doing you remember they weren't fasting like the others of John and now it's something that they are doing that they're complaining about so this is what we're going to read about here verse 23 to 28 one sabbath he was going through the grain fields he being Jesus and as they made their way his disciples began to pluck heads of grain And the Pharisees were saying to him, Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? What are they doing in the grain fields themselves on the Sabbath? Looks like they're stalking Jesus to me. Just following him around, trying to find something wrong. Verse 25. And he said to them, Have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry? He and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God, that is the tabernacle, in the time of Abiathar the high priest, and ate the bread of the presence which it is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave to those who were with him. And he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. So let's look, first of all, In verses 23 and 24, that the disciples here are doing something that's unlawful. We would agree with that. They actually are breaking the rules concerning the Sabbath. So one Sabbath, the Hebrew, you've probably heard it on the news, they talk about the Shabbat because of all of the news concerning what's going on in the land of Palestine and Israel now. So the Shabbat, we all have an idea about the Sabbath, but let me remind you, this is the Jewish day of rest. It's based on the fourth commandment of the Ten Commandments. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. It's actually the longest commandment in the list of the ten, because it goes into detail why they're to keep it. It's based on what occurred In the creation week, God created the world in six days and he rested on the Sabbath or the seventh day. And that became then a day instituted by God himself as a day of rest. So on that day, 
they, they were to cease all work, all labor. They and their servants and their animals, their animals, their beasts of burden, they weren't to work on the Sabbath. So this was a very important day. It's one of the things that distinguishes Judaism, along with circumcision and uh, some of their practices, makes them very distinct from the other nations of the world. We actually read in Ezekiel 20 that God gave Israel the Sabbath as a sign, he uses that language, as a sign of the relationship between God and his people. It set them apart. It, it gave them a unique status in the world in contrast to the other nations. So what are they doing on the Sabbath? Well, they're plucking. That's harvesting. And in Exodus 31, 34, rather, verse 21, it says, Six days you shall work, but on the seventh day you shall rest in plowing, and in harvest you shall rest. So they were sort of harvesting. They were plucking heads of grain because they were hungry. So the Pharisees are there. It's kind of strange. There weren't many Pharisees, apparently, up in Galilee. They were more down in Jerusalem, in the precinct of the temple, and where most of the the religious leaders resided. But here they are up in Galilee, and apparently there's some of them that are following the Lord Jesus Christ around. And it's the Sabbath, and it just makes you wonder, you know, what are they doing there themselves in the grain field or nearby? And they see this. So they're, they're the ones who were very careful about honoring the Sabbath, abiding by all the rules. They followed very strict uh, rules on that day. Um, The Mishnah that I've mentioned, that collection of interpretation of the law, how the law is to be kept, and so on. The Mishnah says that there were 39 different types of work that came under Resting on the Sabbath day. 39. So, reaping or harvesting, obviously, is one because that's specified even in the book of Exodus. But they probably went into great detail on that. So, they're saying to Jesus, notice they don't say it to the disciples. They take their complaint directly to him because he's their teacher, he's their leader. What they're do reflects back on Jesus. So they're posing this question to the Son of God. Why are his disciples doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? So Jesus is getting blamed for their conduct. And, you know, this happens continually with Christians, even today, there's people who will not read the New Testament to find out who Jesus Christ is. They're not interested in reading the Bible. But they do look 
carefully at those who profess to be Christians. And when Christians are behaving in a way that does not, in their mind, agree with what they perceive Christianity to be, then they derive their impressions of who Jesus is. They won't read the Bible to find out, but they'll make some conclusions about Christianity, about Christ, based on how his people behave. So this principle is always, in effect, has been throughout the ages. And by our conduct, we either raise people's opinions of Jesus Christ, we bring commendation to him, or it works the other way. We can discredit Jesus by how we conduct ourselves. So there's a principle here that I see that's important, that's true of all ages of the Christian faith. Now, verses 25 and 26, Jesus answers this. And he answers it with an appeal to Scripture. He asks the Pharisees, have you never read? Now, it's a subtle rebuke. And, of course, they have read it because they were not biblically illiterate like the Sadducees. Remember the two groups, the Sadducees, they were the religious liberals of Jesus' day. They didn't believe in angels. They did not believe in the resurrection. There were cardinal doctrines of the Old Testament even that they didn't believe. So they, but they were ignorant, and Jesus rebuked them for their ignorance when he said, you do err not knowing the scriptures or the power of God when they were bringing up uh, what they thought was an, an impossible situation with respect to resurrection. I won't go into that, but that's an interesting story and in how Jesus answered them. But he rebuked them for not knowing the Bible, basically. That's, they made the mistake in their theology because they didn't know the Word of God. But that was not true of the Pharisees. They were very steeped in Scripture. They studied the Old Testament. So Jesus is reminding them of something that they knew. They had read this story before. It comes out of 1 Samuel Chapter 21, David and his men, remember David had this amazing army of some very tough warriors. They're described at the end of Samuel, David's army. Many of them are named and what they accomplished. So David and his men were actually fleeing from King Saul. And... uh, Because King Saul wanted to kill David. He was possessed with jealousy, knowing David had been anointed to be king over Israel. And King Saul couldn't handle that. So he attempted to kill David. And so they're fleeing, and they're hungry. And so David and his men, they enter the tabernacle in Shiloh. That's where the tabernacle was for many years. In search of food. And if you go inside the tabernacle, the tabernacle was a big tent. Really quite big. But it had two rooms inside this tent. And the rooms 
had a curtain for a division between the two rooms. One third of the room was behind the curtain. The other two thirds of the room were on the other side of the curtain. Behind the curtain was the Ark of the Covenant. A priest could only go in there once a year, and it was the high priest. One day out of the year, he went behind the curtain to make an atonement on the Ark of the Covenant, sprinkling blood. And so right in front of the curtain, in the other room, was the altar of incense. And then on either side of the curtain was a table that had cakes of bread on it, 12 of them, for the 12 tribes of Israel. They were placed there every Sabbath, these loaves or cakes of bread. And the language is that they were loaves of the presence, that is, of the presence of God. And they indicated, again, Israel's unique relationship to God, God's presence there in the in the tabernacle. On the other side was the, the uh, golden candlestick. So that's a setup. So David enters into that first room of the tabernacle. He's hungry. His men are hungry, and they're in search of food. He grabs that bread, and they eat that. Now, he, David totally broke the law because that bread was designated for the high priest and his sons, and it was to be eaten in the tabernacle. So this is what Jesus is referring to. Have you never read what David did? So he explains that to them. Now here here is the parallel. It's obvious. The parallel is David and his men, and not Jesus and his disciples, it's the disciples that are gleaning. So it's the disciples. And the, the, the common link between these two stories, though David's uh, incident didn't involve breaking the Sabbath, as far as we know. It, it doesn't mention that he was breaking the Sabbath. That's not what Jesus draws attention to. It's the fact that he took that bread that was meant for the priests. That's what David did wrong. But David was never condemned for it in the Old Testament. He wasn't condemned for it. So Jesus is reminding them that both of these things were done out of what? Out of necessity. The necessity of hunger. The basic need that we all have for food. So the human, here, here's the principle that I believe the Lord Jesus Christ is making to the Pharisees. He's teaching them something. And what he's teaching is that the, the need of man, human need, can take precedence even over God's rules, God's law. This is an important thing over the regulations of connected with eating that bread in the tabernacle or the regulations connected to keeping the Sabbath holy. So this is what he's laying out before them. 
Now, finally, in verses 27 and 28, Jesus makes two final pronouncements. And this really, it ends the argument. They don't have anything to say after this. And this is very uh, amazing what he says. It's powerful. Notice, notice how he puts it. Verse 27, he said to them, this, this is taking it a step further. So he's teaching the Pharisees something about keeping the law, obviously, and what can even supersede it in some situations out of necessity. Well, now he's going to tell, this is the ultimate thing here that he's going to teach them, something about himself. He said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Now, let's just think about this. The Sabbath was made for man. When was man made during the six days of creation? He was made on day six. That's when God formed Adam. He, he created the, the major animals, the land animals, on the sixth day. And man was made on the sixth day. The Sabbath institution, the, the day of rest, it came the next day of the creation week. It was the seventh day. So Jesus is pointing out the obvious. The Sabbath didn't come first and then man was made afterwards for it. Just the opposite. Man was made first. Then the day of rest, so this, is, this isn't something very obvious. The Sabbath is made for man, not the reverse. Now, what does Jesus mean by that, that the Sabbath was made for man? Well, first of all, let's ask the question, who was man made for? If man was not made for the Sabbath, who or what was man made for? Well, the, the New Testament gives us a couple of texts to answer that. The Apostle Paul, 2 Corinthians 8 and verse 6. There is one God, the Father, from whom, from whom are all things, that's speaking of creation, from whom are all things. In other words, God the Father is the source of all things. Then Paul adds... And for whom all exists. Huh, that word for is very important. All things are from the Father, and all things are for the Father. So it would be correct to say that man was made for God, because Paul is using a universal here of all things. So this is, this is the purpose of all creation, in fact. Not only man, but everything that we can see in heaven and earth is made for God. Paul underscores that again in Colossians chapter 1, but here he applies it to Jesus Christ, who actually was involved in the creation as well. The speaking of Jesus, all things were made through him and for him. Colossians 1.16. So again, 
Paul's theology hasn't changed. It's the doctrine of the Trinity that we find coming out here. The Father and the Son are co-equal, both involved in the creation of the world. Both are the end or the, the object of creation, who creation is for, ultimately. So, yeah, man was made for God. He wasn't made for the Sabbath. Let's answer it correctly, biblically. It's made for God. But the Sabbath now, or the Shabbat, was made for man. Now, it's telling us it's made for man's benefit. It's made in, for, for man in his best interests. And the Sabbath, day of rest... Uh, the things that you can see that enhance the, the life of man would be to give man a break from his work. It's not good for any man to work seven days a week, every week in and week out. It'll kill him eventually. No, there's to be a rhythm to life. You work six days and then you take a day off. You relax. You uh, in, do something else. But in the Bible, it's to be kept holy. So it involves, here, here's a day in the week when we give attention to the thing that's most important in our life, namely our relationship to God. So in a sense, we can look at Sunday as this is our, our day of rest for many of us, not necessarily a day of rest uh, for me, but for most of you, a day of rest if you're not working you come to church, this is where you can attend to spiritual things, get your spiritual needs met, get refreshed, come away from the anxieties and cares of your daily life and routine and put it aside if you can and, and focus on something else. This is all for man's benefit. This is what Jesus is saying. The Sabbath is made for your benefit. Somebody said it's to keep man it's to make man holy, healthy, and ultimately happy. You know, three H's. You put them all together. Care for your soul. Give attention to the Word of God, to your relationship to the Lord. Taking time off from work. Resting from all of that. This is how to be ultimately happy in life. Now, I want to read you a quote from... One of my commentators, I have a few commentaries by somebody by the name of J.A. Alexander. Nobody's going to know who that is, so. But I'll, I will say this, the founder of Princeton Seminary was Archibald Alexander, and he raised a couple of sons. And one of the sons that he raised was Joseph Addison, who also taught at Princeton in the 19th century. He's, he wrote some very good commentaries. I have a commentary on Mark. So this is from Alexander. I like the way he puts this. He says, the Sabbath is an institution meant for human benefit, but not an inexorable law. Now, I know, I know that word inexorable. I had to look it up in order to get really defined as to what he's saying because it's an important word he's using here. It means something that's um, inflexible. 
If it's inexorable, it's inflexible, it's unbending, it's like, you know, there's no give to it. And what Alexander is saying, or yeah, Joseph at, at Alexander, is that the, the law of the Sabbath is not an inflexible law to which the interests of man must yield. But then he goes on and he says, the rest commanded in the, the seventh day, yes, the rest commanded on the seventh day might lawfully be broken for the sake of saving life or, and I like how he says this, even mitigating its distresses. And that is what the case was with the disciples and with David and his men. They were hungry. They weren't dying. They probably would not have died if they hadn't have taken that bread in the tabernacle. But they were hungry, but they were stressed out by it. They couldn't fight at their best. Uh, King Saul, unless they had some uh, recent nourishment, they needed that bread. So this is, this is what Alexander is saying. I mean, this is, this is perfect because this is what Jesus is saying. Yes, you have this law, but there are certain circumstances when this law can be bent. It doesn't have to be... The, see, the Pharisees were like unrelenting with their view of the Sabbath. There's just no situation where you can break this. No, Alexander says it's, uh, it's not a... A uh, inexorable law. It has some flexibility to it. There can be circumstances where it might have to be broken. And God isn't going <laughs> to be angry at you if you have to break it. Okay, so that's, that's the first thing he says. The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Very important statement from the Lord Jesus. But now notice what he says. Verse 28. So, the Son of Man is the Lord even of the Sabbath. Now let's go back. Who instituted the Sabbath rest? Elohim, the God of creation. Genesis chapter 2. He instituted the seventh day, to be a day of rest. He gave the law on Mount Sinai in Exodus 20 and in Deuteronomy 5, where the Ten Commandments are repeated a second time. This is the law of God. He made the rules. He determines how the law is to be applied, how it's to be kept. He makes the rules. He's the one who regulates it. So he, he instituted it. He consecrated this day. This is what God did. In other words, God is the Lord of the Sabbath. That'd be correct to say. God is. This is his day. He's the one that rules over it. He's the one that decides how it's to be observed. What can and cannot be done. Not the Pharisees. God does. So for the Lord Jesus Christ then to say of himself... I am the Lord of the Sabbath. 
This is powerful. He's putting himself in the place of God. Remember, we have seen, we're, already, we're just in the second chapter of Mark, and almost in every situation, he is showing himself who he really is. His identity is being revealed to people. Who is Jesus? Well, let John, his apostle, answer that. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. This was his pre-incarnate name, the Logos, the Word, what makes a revelation of one's thoughts or reason. Jesus is called the Logos. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. And then John says the amazing thing. And the Word was God. And then he goes on and he says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. That is what Christmas is all about. That's when the Word became flesh. God became incarnate in a man in the person of Jesus. Jesus will say later in John's Gospel, If you believe not that I am, you shall die in your sins. So it's very important that people believe in the true Jesus. The true Jesus is God in the flesh. If you try to argue some other position, he wasn't really God, he was the Son of God, and you make that to be somebody less than God, or that he's Michael the archangel, as the Jehovah's Witnesses say about him, or he's even a God, another, another way that the Jehovah's Witnesses, that's their translation of John 1.1, by the way, in their Bible. There's no Greek scholar in the world that would translate, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was a God. No Greek scholar would translate it that way. The Word was God. But that's how they translate it, because they don't believe Jesus was the God, Yahweh, in the flesh. You have to believe in the true Lord Jesus Christ in order to be a true Christian. What can we say now about this? Again, the greatness of the person of Christ is staring us in the face in this passage. As I just mentioned. His identity is being made known, his claims, his miraculous works. Who is he? By the way, if you want to hear a powerful sermon, it was sent to me by Austin, by the way. I don't know, Steve, did he send you the sermon by Billy Graham called Who Is He? you got to hear this. Look it up. Dynamic presentation of Christ in this sermon was... Really, really great. Billy Graham at his best, preaching. So, going back to what I had said earlier, that Jesus answered the Pharisees um, by his appeal to Scripture. This is how he answered them. He said, have you never read? And then he talks about this Old Testament illustration. That, that, there's a wonderful principle here. A real simple one. So when, there's a, when you have a case where there's disagreement among people, among churches, among different groups, and there's disagreement over some 
religious belief or a religious practice? How do you solve that? Who, who has the final say in a situation like that? Well, Jesus is telling us how to do it. When, you, when there's disagreement, there's questions about belief and practice, uh, you settle it by appealing to the Bible. What does the Bible say? That, that's, that's, the, that's the bottom line. What does Scripture say? It doesn't matter. I don't care what the majority is. The, whole, the rest of the world might be saying something else to me. Or the, 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 the hierarchy of certain churches are saying something different. It doesn't matter. If it doesn't agree with the Word of God, then we don't listen to those voices. So we have, it behooves us to know the Bible ourselves, have an understanding of Scripture. Don't rely so much on what I tell you that the Bible says. Our approach is very simple. You look at the text behind me, and we go through it line by line to try to figure it out and understand what God is saying. And hopefully, I do my best to try to present it in a way that you will understand, and I think... But I might be wrong in some things. So study the Bible yourself. Know these things from your own study. It's important. So it doesn't matter what the majority says or popular opinion or human authorities. It's what does the Bible say. That's the bottom line for me. And then I want to say something about the lordship of Jesus. Because here he's declared to be Lord, even of the Sabbath. Now, to be Lord uh, could mean one who owns slaves. That was a Lord who had control over other people. That same word, though, when it's applied to Jesus Christ, it is elevated to a whole new level of understanding. And what the Bible says, if we ask the question, well, if Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath, what else is he the Lord of? Well, you know, Peter tells us in one of his sermons. The sermon he preached in the house of Cornelius, the Roman centurion, who invited him to come with a message. Acts chapter 10, Peter tells us, Jesus is Lord of all. Acts 10.36. Well, there's an all that means all in a universal sense. There isn't anything left out of that. And to get how, how complete that lordship is, Paul elsewhere tells us that Jesus, for to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord of both the living and and the dead. Think of that. He's Lord of all the living, as well as those who have died and their bodies are in the grave. Because of his lordship over the dead and the living, the day is coming when he will, with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the final trumpet, he will call the dead out of their graves. 
He is Lord of the living and the dead. He has jurisdiction over where each of us is to spend eternity. He's going to decide where each of us is going to be in the next life because he's presented as the final judge of the human race. And Jesus told us why he's the judge. It's because he said the Father judges no man but has committed all judgment unto the Son because he is the Son of Man. This is why. Because he has our nature. He's in a place to be our judge. And he lived in this world. So this is the Lordship of Christ. But now, look at how Paul applies it in Romans chapter 10. The same Lord is Lord of all. He's speaking about Jesus Christ. The same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call upon him. For whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. That, that is a Bible promise there. This is how you're to read this. This is a promise from the Lord. If you're not saved yet, if you're not a Christian, Paul says, and he's actually quoting the Bible. Paul is quoting from the Old Testament with that text. This is an Old Testament text. Everyone who calls on the name, who, who is the Lord? It's Jesus. So whoever calls on the name of the Lord, namely the Lord Jesus Christ, shall be saved. Not hope to be, not might be. He says he shall be. That, th- those are words of certainty. What, is, what does it mean to call on his name? This is, this is speaking of prayer. We realize that we need him. Call out to him. People don't have to come forward in a church to call out to Jesus. I don't agree with calling people forward. Never have followed that. You can call in the name of the Lord right where you sit. Call on his name. Lord, remember the publican in the story of the publican and the tax collector? He beat on his chest said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. That would be calling on the name of the Lord. You don't have to be told what to pray. Just call on his name. Lord, I need you. I I want to be saved. I have many sins I want forgiven. Lord, have mercy. Call upon his name. The promise is, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. You can know that when you die you will go to be with the Lord. There doesn't need to be any doubt or question in your mind about that if you called on his name and he has saved you. You can have that assurance of salvation. This is, this is a beautiful thing. There are some churches who say, no, you can't know that you're saved. That's, that's presumption. Nobody knows that they're saved. You, you can hope. Listen, I don't want to take that chance and hope for something. 
I don't want to take a flight somewhere and, and hope that the plane doesn't crash because they told me, you know, there's a 10% chance we're not going to make it to New York. I would not get on that plane if I was told that. No, I want to be certain of the end. I mean, this is the ultimate thing. Where am I going to be in the next life? I want to know I'm with him, Amen. that I'm safe and secure. So if you want to be there as well, do what Paul said. This is a Bible promise. It's a promise from God. God does not lie. God doesn't make promises and then not fulfill them. He keeps his word. Whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Thank you for joining us and listening to this message from the Ministry of Grace Providence Church in Cerritos, California. For more information, visit our website at www.graceprovidencechurch.org.